Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life.
Hello, everyone. Welcome to America Meditating Radio. I'm your host, Sister Jenna. We're broadcasting from the beautiful Meditation Museum in the nation's capital. So if you happen to be local, please don't hesitate to stop in. And if you're visiting the nation's capital, put this museum on your list as, what is that? I've got to go and see it. <laughs> I hope you're doing very well. And it's been an intriguing time for all of us. Perhaps we're learning more about letting go rather than holding on. And what I mean by that is sort of um, there are certain things that what used to work for us or what we thought was normal or what we believed in has taken its toll or it has lived out what it needed to in the being. And uh, we don't need it anymore. And so perhaps the really what I'm feeling we really need to hold on to. It might sound a little bit simple, but I really believe it's true. We need to hold on to our respect, our virtues, our values, the type in which can actually be in alignment with our relationships with one another, despite our gender preferences, despite our religious beliefs, our political beliefs, despite just our economical standing in the life. To what extent can I continue to treat people on the basis of kindness and virtuosity and beauty. In the morning class of the teachings of Raj Yoga today, it was a very interesting question. It was about what kind of attention do we pay to become a better version of ourselves, you might say a higher version of ourselves. And it was about never, never going against wisdom. Don't go against wisdom. Fighting, quarreling has no connection with your wisdom. Therefore, the focus on the class today was to pay attention to the way you are behaving, the way you're thinking, the way you are relating to other people. So let words really be sweet and let your words touch hearts of others. Now, as simple as that sounds and as beautiful as that sounds, have you ever found yourself in a place where you're around just really uh, different energy than where you are, or at least you think you are in in another place. But when the energy of the person or the event emerges in your story, you don't come out with sweetness. You don't come out with kindness. You come out with hate. You come out with ego. You come out with anger. And you wonder what happened to all the wisdom that I, I know to be true. Every religious text has inspired and guided us to be kind, to be generous, to be thoughtful. And so just imagine each time I go against that wisdom in the soul, not only am I hurting myself, but it's almost as if I'm burying the treasure of my happiness. And if I'm not happy, it's so hard for me to be a bestowing person, a person of a charitable nature from my spirit. And so it becomes so difficult for me to live from that place of happiness and to even share happiness with others. And, you know, nowadays mental illness is such an important conversation to have. And we can go as far as looking at mental illness from the context of somebody going into a school and shooting up children. They themselves might just be a little bit shy of 21 years of age, you're still young. You're still young when you look at it from a broader perspective. Or it might be somebody who just can't take it anymore, and they're at Las Vegas at the MGM, and they just you know, check into a hotel with all of their weapons, and 
kill over, uh, how many died that time? I think it was over 700 that died the Las Vegas um, MGM. And so they claim that that's mental illness, and I, I get that. There's definitely something that has reached a point that it's so high that they can't hold themselves back. But I've started to look at mental illness from the point of each time even I get angry or upset or if I get anxious, I'm just not in my peace. It is serving the energy of not feeling well on a mental level. And I'm just wondering if it's, if it's really an important part that we need to look into more and to begin to identify that if I keep coming from that place, to what extent does it reach its mark that I can't keep holding on to that energy, that vibration in the being? Food for thought. Today gives me great privilege to welcome Dr. Barbara Van Dellen, who's named to Times 2012 list of 100 most influential people in our world. She is the president and founder of Given Hour. She is a licensed clinical psychologist who has been practicing in our local area here in Washington, D.C. Given Hour has created a national network of mental health professionals who provide free services to U.S. troops, veterans, their loved ones, and their communities. Given Hour also leads the campaign to change direction. It's a global initiative focused on changing the culture of Mental Health, which launched in March of 2015 with former First Lady Michelle Obama. Boy, we sure do miss them. Dr. Van Dalen has received numerous awards, including the American Psychological Association's Presidential Citation, and she was honored by the Chief of Staff of the United States Army as an outstanding civilian who has made significant contributions to our military and the United States Army. She received in 2016 American Foundation for Suicide Prevention Lifesavers Gala Public Service Award. And in 2018, Dr. Van Dalen also received the Public Service Award from the Veterans of Foreign Affairs. She has become a notable source and expert on the psychological impact of war and a thought leader in mobilizing civilian constituencies to create large system change. She contributes to the Huffington Post and Time and has been interviewed by many major media outlets, including AP, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and much more. Today, we're privileged to welcome the amazing <laughs> Dr. Barbara Van Dalen to the show. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Well, thank you, Sister Jenna, for that lovely introduction, and thank you for all the amazing work that you are doing. I have so enjoyed listening this morning uh, to your words of wisdom about mental health and what contributes to our emotional well-being. So I'm just very thrilled to be here today. Well, I'm honored that you were able to take the time to join us. You know, our community and our audience is one that's very reflective, and there are quite a number of people, too, who are looking at becoming more reflective to see what changes they can make in their lives and what areas can they contribute more in their lives to make mm -hmm. our planet much better. You're doing great work. I just came to learn about it. It's wonderful. <laughs> Thank and you. I you're welcome. I understand that the network which you have created has nearly 7,000 mental health professionals who have given more than 265,000 hours of care. That's a lot of money. So, that's a lot of, um, a lot of hours, yes. <laughs> that's, a lot of, that's a lot of hours, and it's a lot of money if you were to pay mm -hmm. them, and they're volunteering their time, I believe, 
Tell us a little bit about the organization and what inspired you to create it. Sure. So I'm a clinical psychologist, as you said. I'm a child psychologist by my background and the work that I was doing. I grew up in rural California. My father was a first-generation American who lied about his age to join the Navy uh, right after Pearl Harbor. So he answered the call like like many young men of his generation. He served. He was injured. He saw many horrible things. That was long before I was born. He came home from that war and met and married my mom, and they had my three older brothers. And like a lot of people, my dad wanted to give his kids a better life. So he moved this young family when my mother was pregnant with me to the rural part of California. He had been born and raised in Los Angeles and had this idea of, you know, moving the family to the rural experience and having a small plot of land. And this was after the war and, you know, his dreams and his vision for us, very loving and hopeful about what the future might hold. Unfortunately, moving my mom during that time when she was pregnant, we will never really understand all the factors, but it triggered a psychotic break in her. And she was later diagnosed with schizophrenia. And back then, and still today, treatments in order to actually treat effectively the illness itself were limited and still are in many ways, although we know more about how to help people and families live with conditions like schizophrenia. But that was the beginning of my life and really set the course for me to want to understand mental illness, mental health. My father came home with post-traumatic stress not severe as now I look back at it as a mental health professional now, but it clearly affected him, and he didn't know what that was. We didn't know what that mm-hmm. was. And so I moved east to go to the University of Maryland, right outside of our nation's capital, and I then started my practice, and I was here on 9-11. And literally, as some of us who were here, I worked with families connected to the Pentagon. I was here on that day. I watched on the Today Show, the towers fall, was horrified, and I knew that we were most likely going to war and that we needed to be ready to respond to those men and women who would be affected by that type of conflict. And I, at the time, I wanted to give my services after 9-11, and there was no easy way to do that. And so a few years later, that idea was still percolating in my head. I was driving. We were now in the war. This was now 2004. And I was tracking it and listening to the reports and the stories. And I had heard stories of service members coming home, losing their jobs, losing their families, living out of their cars because they were struggling with very severe mental health challenges, post-traumatic stress, and other things. And I was uh, driving my mom van. I had two little girls at the time. And my older daughter uh, was nine at the time, and she saw a homeless veteran on a street corner holding a sign that said, Vietnam veteran, please help, God bless. And she Mm -hmm. erupted with outrage and said, Mommy, how can we let this happen to these men who served our country? My father had died many, many years before. She never knew him, but she knew about him. And that was really the inspiration for building this organization that in the beginning 
was focused on providing free care to those who serve their families and their communities. And now we've expanded and we serve many other populations. Mm, that's beautiful. It's an amazing story. Thank you. Well, Thank you. Sometimes we never know the experiences that we have when we are young children, but the way that they impact us later on, that it's something that touched us so deeply that it's sitting there as a to-do. We have no Absolutely. idea. Absolutely. You know, I was just going to say, and hopefully, if we're fortunate, one way or the other, we come to understand those connections because they are there mm-hmm. for all of us, for good, for bad, and often a mix. Some of the things that we experience, to your point, you know, growing up, I lost, in addition to losing my mom to schizophrenia, I lost my brother when I was 15. I lost a stepbrother that same year and a stepsister earlier. Mm-hmm. My dad died when I was young. All those factors affected me, but also my seeing my father step in and take care of Myself, I was a baby, my three brothers, doing his best, never giving up, looking out for us, becoming mother and father. Those experiences shaped me too and everyone else that touched Mm -hmm. my life. And if we're lucky, as we get older and wiser, we learn about all of that to feel proud and thankful, grateful for the the things that affected us in ways that, that we are positive and and doing good in the world and hopefully we learn the things that affect us that lead to unhealthy unhappy destructive tendencies in ourselves and that's a lot of what what the work that mental health professionals do i mean everything is unfolding into something you know my great-grandfather used to always say despite whatever's happening to you always remember there's benefit in it and i don't know Uh if i'm still Uh learning it because I think we learn more about our resilience, our power, things that we must continue to do and things we don't need to do anymore. But I want to go back to your daughter. She seems much Mm. more involved than I still (laughs) might be even now because when I get off wearing Great Falls and when I get off of Exit 31 to go to the Mm -hmm. Meditation Museum in Silver Spring, there are usually some folks holding up those cardboard signs, and I've Mm -hmm. seen those. Mm-hmm. And I get confused. I think it's a business. And every time in my thought, I think, gosh, I'd like to watch to see, is it really true? Like, mm-hmm. I really don't know if those signs are really authentic. So I'm always mm-hmm. caught between my heart wanting to say, oh, here. You know, and then a part of me is saying, but I don't want to feed whatever limitation is happening. And I always wish I had an apple in the car, that mm-hmm. at least I feel like I am being charitable. So Mm -hmm. just that one comment that she made, look at what it did. Now, Mm -hmm. we're going through a lot uh, in America. Maybe we always have. It's just a high volume right now. (laughs) And um, we're hearing a lot about the high suicide rate amongst our veterans and how many are actually suffering from PTSD. How would you explain Mm -hmm. the psychological impact of war? Well, it's it's very... uh, as you said, we are going through a lot. And and one side note that I'll make, and then I'll answer your question more directly, but it's not just veterans who are exhibiting high rate of suicide. The Center for Disease Control released a study earlier this, actually it was in 2018, that our country as a whole, we are seeing a rise in suicide in the last 25 years. It's quite alarming, quite concerning. And there are certain groups that are increasing at a higher rate, young girls, teenage girls. 
and there are factors that we are looking at and, and trying to understand what that might be and, and what's contributing to that. But it, there are many things happening in our society, some good, but clearly we are in many ways, as a, overall as a society, we have some areas that are, are quite alarming, concerning, um, some that have been there always, tensions, poverty, inequalities, but these mental health pieces here, suicide as now something that is happening more frequently uh, is very, very concerning. And that, again, is a huge focus for our work. Back to the veteran piece and the experience of war, trauma is just, when someone goes through trauma, and war is trauma, uh, you cannot experience being in a war zone or being in combat or being near combat and being aware of losing lives, whether you see it or not, it's almost, there are several factors. It can be how close you are to the actual experience of, you know, a firefight or an explosion, but it also can be that you're back at the base where you are receiving the bodies of injured service members. And it may be that you come into that experience with a lot of trauma from where you came from that is underneath that, and then the new trauma is laid on top of that, those experiences can be extremely painful. They can create a variety of reactions that are normal for humans. This is how we react. Anyone who's listening, I talk about this to help put people in a frame where they can imagine. If we were backing out of our out of our driveway today and you know heading to wherever we were going and we got to the stop sign and we turned left and we didn't see the car that was coming or perhaps they sped through a light and crashed into us and we were in a car accident and hopefully it wasn't wasn't a serious accident where we were seriously injured but we were shaken up that for the rest of that day and perhaps the next day and the next day we would have flashbacks of what happened because it would be jarring to our psyche, to our sense of self and experience. And we would have thoughts that would run through our head like, oh my gosh, if I hadn't left at that time, if I hadn't turned left, if I would have looked more carefully. Mm -hmm. And we might even have bad dreams. We might be a little down, have trouble concentrating at work that day. So you take that experience that any of us might have, you magnify it because of you would magnify the trauma, a death, a rape, a mm-hmm. assault, and you can start to imagine the impact that this kind of trauma can have, and you layer on that whatever challenges then come into that person's life when they come back from service, struggles with relationships, financial struggles, and it's easy to see that without that awareness, without that help to address those reactions, someone can spiral into a very deep, dark despair. Mm. It's a possibility. And why is it that some people, Barbara, are able to handle mm, situations that question. were negative and others aren't? Others can't. That is a wonderful mm. question. And that, too, uh, goes to the complexity of, of human beings. Some people, because of their constitution, how they're literally put together, what tendencies they have to be a bit anxious, worry more. We know 
it's it's sort of part of our our uniqueness. These are not necessarily negative factors; they're just contributing factors. So some of us run a bit more on the worrier side. Some of us tend to be more like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, see the world a bit gloomy <laughs> and dark. Or maybe that's the the community that we grew up in has those tendencies that we absorb. Some people develop identify and find strategies for coping early in life or were taught them. Others didn't get that and perhaps were were pounded by life and didn't have mm-hmm. that person, in my case, my father, who was like your grandfather, who said to me things that always reminded me that life can be very hard, but it is also good. Or brave being brave i used to tell my daughters this i still tell them this being brave doesn't mean you're not afraid it means you're afraid but you do it anyway so these kinds of lessons that we pick up these constitutional factors and these this collection of experiences all affect us so that we are either able to bounce back from or maybe we bounce back from five and it's the sixth one that we can't or we are slammed by a, a, a an event that is so traumatic, so horrific, it would be hard to imagine anyone not being scarred by it. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I have um, I have someone very close to me who seems to have been struggling in this lifetime because mm-hmm. of their trauma just stuck there, just stuck mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And I think that the reason why they're still stuck there is that at an early at an early stage. They had nobody to talk to. There mm-hmm. was that there was no avenue to release the thoughts or to even check in with the thoughts to yes. see are these thoughts healthy? Are they, is yes. this what I should be thinking as to what's what's happened to me? For yes. cases in which individuals have not had an opportunity to address some of the thoughts that they feel might not be healthy for them, and it's gone on for ten years, mm-hmm. twenty years, thirty years, is there really? Is there really a chance to break through that? No, I've been so amazed, Sister Jenna, Mm -hmm. over my life, over my work. I never give up on someone because I have seen so many situations where decades of, let's say, substance abuse, as an example, or Mm -hmm. decades of dysfunctional behavior, and then something clicks or they find a path. And certainly I have found many, many, I know many cases among veterans who what they found was meditation, that nothing else worked, and meditation then gave them a sense of peace. For other people, it might be finding service or finding that someone needs them in a way that allows them to come out of their own pain and suffering. There are certain conditions, like my mother's schizophrenia, there really there was nothing she could do to to break through that process because that is a very, very serious challenge to the, mm-hmm. to literally how her brain was functioning. People who are dealing with bipolar disorder, there are lots and lots and lots of folks who have found ways using a variety of factors to really address, to heal, to thrive, to function beautifully. But if they don't find those, that can be a very disruptive and destructive process. So to answer your question, it's we always want to hope, don't we? We always want to mm-hmm. help. But I would also say that for people living with or trying to support those As you and I both know, you can only put so much of your energy into trying to rescue or save someone who is in a difficult place. It's 
that's not healthy for us. You, you know, we can only do so much to help and support and guide and suggest and advise and offer. We also we have to take care of ourselves as well. Yes, yes, I agree with that. I think the only time I find myself when, when I feel like I don't have enough Barbara to offer them, mm. I feel upset at myself that I'm not powerful enough to help and to give them more of the time and the support that they need, especially when it's overwhelming that they want so much of it. But, yeah. you know, these are some of the opportunities that we get in life. And Absolutely. there are challenges that come. And you've been widely recognized for your work in changing the culture associated with mental health. That means <laughs> that means you've been challenged <laughs> to yes. no ends. So what are some of the challenges that you have found in addressing the stigma associated mm. with mental health? It is a it's a huge issue and I, I feel so passionate about our work around that, around changing and removing barriers. So the work we're doing through the campaign to change direction, it's the first public health approach and by that, I mean the work, the message we're giving is for everyone. It is not just for people, the one in five of us, by the way, mm-hmm. who have a diagnosable condition. And again, it, that should say to us loud and clear, this is part of the human condition. This doesn't mean I'm weak or broken or damaged. It means I'm human. We all mm-hmm. have, as you said, challenges. We all suffer emotionally at times. We all are born. We inherit parts and pieces of those who came before us genetically. And so we should not see these things as flaws, failures that were broken, that were damaged. They should be seen and recognized just as we would say, okay, well, diabetes runs in my family, so I need to be careful and mindful about how I eat and, how, and making sure I exercise. Or heart disease, which runs, happens to run in my family. My father died of heart disease. So I'm very mindful of that and aware of that. But we tend to feel shame and guilt. And as soon as we start to experience something in ourselves that feels like it's in this mental health space, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to acknowledge it. We don't recognize it. And we certainly don't uh, tend to not be proactive about it. And so the work we're doing is to try to educate everyone to recognize five basic indicators that tell us that someone's in emotional pain. We're not labeling. We're not judging. We're just helping people recognize how do you know what you see? And if you see it, you reach out, you connect, you offer to help. Be compassionate. Open the door. Share your own experiences. Let's change the way that we think about, talk about, and address emotional health and well-being, because if we intervene early for ourselves and our loved ones, then people tend to have a much better outlook. They don't spiral. We can reduce some of these very, very serious things that affect those we care about and reduce things like suicide in our country and and all the Mm -hmm. other things. Your, Your point about wanting people to know that they have someone to talk to Find the path that helps you be healthy, heal, and there are many, many, many different things that are in in that are on that side of the equation. But first, we have to change the culture so that people are comfortable saying, you know what, depression runs in my family, and I have a tendency during the winter months I can get a bit depressed. How can I find things that help me? What's going to work for me? And have someone then say, you know what, 
here's what was helpful for me. I found this, mm-hmm. or you know what? I heard about that on a, on a program I listened to. That's where we're heading with this. Wow, that's wonderful. You know, in India, and I'm suspecting that the numbers are accurate because it came from a psychiatrist who's a very close friend of mine, and he said that in India there are only 3,000 psychiatrists yes. in such a large population yes. because it is a culture in which if you're born, you know, just imbalanced in terms of your chemical constituents yes. and stuff, um, they leave you. They basically yes. push you aside and they just go, she's crazy or he's crazy, he's this, he's that. And I have so much appreciation for the times that we're in now because we are moving to a more accepting culture, even though the media won't let the world know that. They more cover, there was an awful attack on um, the actor from the Empire movie, Jesse. Yes, I saw that. Right, and they amplify those things, and yet... There's a lot of empathy and there's still a lot of accommodation and love for one another, but they don't show those things. So yes. I think that, yeah, the change in the culture of mental health has taken place and it's so good that you're doing the work that you're doing. Given Hour has also expanded its yes. services and it's, I mean, it's really providing a lot. What are some of the non-military populations that you're also addressing? And this is, you know, this is, it's the good news and it's also the challenge, you know, as to your point, we are starting to see some changes. There, There is more, which is great, there is more recognition. People are speaking up, speaking out about mental health and, and emotional challenges and the whole continuum. And what happens then is organizations like ours are being asked to do more, which is great. I'm very proud of that. And yet the reality is there are not enough mental health professionals in our country, let alone around the world. And so we need to keep continuing to leverage and think about how to use the folks we have and other tools. And that's part of our work too. You mentioned we have nearly 7,000 providers. There are 500,000 mental health professionals in the U.S. Compare that to the only 3,000 in India, about 500,000 here, but that's not enough. We have about 65 million people in our country who are dealing with some kind of mental health challenge. And so I hope that any mental health professional listening to this will join Given Hour because we are now serving, as you said, a number of different populations. We're working right here in the Washington, D.C. area to serve at-risk youth and teens in Fairfax County through a project with Fairfax County, which we're very proud of. We're also just launching a new project here in D.C. that is focused on folks who have been victims of crime and assault and trauma and building our network so that the mental health professionals in Washington, D.C. will have additional trauma-informed training. So any of the mental health folks listening in this area, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, come on in, join Given Hour. We're a virtual organization. You go to givenhour.org, and it's very easy. And you choose when you give and how you give and where you give. So the at-risk team... Thank you. At-risk teens here. We're also working in Indianapolis with um, at-risk women and girls. We're working in California through Given Hour California. Our um, hub out there is focused on providing care and support to the survivors following the Thousand Oaks shooting that happened on November Mm -hmm. 11th. We always open the network anytime there's a disaster or a man-made trauma. So the shooting that you mentioned in Las Vegas, we opened our Mm -hmm. network then. 
we've opened the network in response to um, the fires, the wildfires in California, the floods in Texas and Florida, Superstorm Sandy a few years ago. We always respond because we're here. And if we have these providers, they can respond as much as we can. We give them the, the encouragement and the option, and they do. They, As you said, we've given... $26.5 million worth of care, 265,000 hours that we can count, and that's only the reported numbers. We know it's mm-hmm. probably two or three times that. The last group that I'll mention that we are proud to serve, we're just uh, working with a number of different um, organizations to offer services to those families affected by this, the separations at our border. Mm-hmm. And that story has been heartbreaking. It has been in and out of the news. From the beginning, we had set, we opened up our network and are offering care to those families to help with reunification, to help the teenagers that are placed all over this country in settings away from their families. Um, it's horrific. It's not healthy for anyone so we're doing as much as we can, and as I said, if I could get every one of those 500,000 mental health professionals to give just one hour a week, hour. imagine what we could do. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it can shift the whole thing. Regarding the children that have been separated at the border, and it's a, I mean, sometimes when I just happen to spend my maybe complete hour altogether a day on the news, my heart just can't take anymore. It's yes. just so much. So you know that the only thing that would make that child happy is just to be with their family. What can a mental health professional actually offer that particular child at that time? So you actually, I'll go back to the what you had mentioned earlier about this person that you were close to and how whatever mm-hmm. happened early in their life, that your sense is they had no one. And so mm-hmm. providing these children with the opportunity to have someone who understands what they might be experiencing, which many of us can empathize, but trained mental health professionals understand how that might manifest. So for a child, when I was doing primarily practice as a child psychologist, children and adults, they show their pain and their suffering in a variety of ways. So a child who has been separated. One child might show that by by sealing up, by being very looking very hard, if you will, guarded. They don't want to talk to anybody. They may even appear angry. They may be belligerent. They may push back or they may kick or bite. All of it is a manifestation of their hurting, their their distress, they're in pain. Another child might become clingy, inconsolable and even very very young children with help can get relief by literally connecting that what's happening to them makes sense their feelings make sense they're not bad they weren't bad and that's not why they were removed these ways that we can use language and helping children with understanding through their play and their actions can help even the youngest child develop strengths, coping mechanisms, resources to help them deal with and come to terms with whatever is happening in their lives. That's great to know because I know that's been a hard one. I just don't know how leaders who have children can actually consider that norm. And it's it's a hard call because sometimes you're 
Right. You're, you know, you're in a job. It's paying your bills, whatever it's feeding, if it's feeding your ego self. Yet, to what extent can you say that's enough? I'd rather go, you know, broke instead of right. be a part of this. And it's a hard well, call for anyone. Well, you raise a really good point that I think is, is important for all of us to keep in mind, which is, you know, the people who are uh, public servants in these mm-hmm. situations, they too are affected by this. They too experience tremendous stress and will have trouble sleeping because there is a clash between what they believe to be right and healthy and what they're required to do for their job. And, and as you said, each one of them faces a decision about where do I step out of this and, and is it is it better to be in the system trying to provide compassionate care to these children because if I leave the next person in, do they care as much about this? Mm-hmm. Some sometimes we bear the burden of tolerating if we in fact are in a system that requires inhumane treatment, but we are ones who perhaps can buffer while this while we keep working in other ways to try to change the system. It's a very difficult, painful situation for many people who are, are in those public service positions. Well, I have to say, being an intuitive person and just being able to know people pretty well just through their eyes, I just look at what's happening with the leadership on the Hill and at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and in my early morning reflection and meditation and prayer, Barbara, I don't see these people sleeping in peace. I see them so tormented. And I just say to myself and I say to God, gosh, when are they going to have their road to Damascus, please? Mm -hmm. Or is it that we have to reach a point of tragedy to actually recognize who we are? And talking about such directional change in Mm -hmm. in our way of being, in 2015 you started the campaign to change direction. And... Mm -hmm. You know, change is not always easy because it means everything (laughs) that you're accustomed to just gets thrown up in the air. Could you tell our listeners about the initiative and how it evolved from your work with Given Hour? Yes, and you mentioned um, First Lady Michelle Obama um, was our our, our keynote. Don't you miss them? Oh, they were. <laughs> they, ha- having had the privilege and the pleasure of working with uh, the First Lady and and meeting President Obama on several occasions, and you know they whatever people want to say about you know the how government works and all that can be done and the fighting and all of that, you know these people were at their core passionate public servants, still are passionate public servants, wanted good for our nation. I am so impressed with everything that they did and continue to do in the service of good and trying to raise all people in our country. So First Lady Michelle Obama and the president got involved with our work very early on, and it really stemmed from another tragedy. You said sometimes we have to have a tragedy, and it was another trauma. This Mm -hmm. time it was the Sandy Hook shootings in 2012 where – that classroom of of children, that school that um, these young, you know, precious children were killed, and it was a another example of the young man who who took those lives, took his own life, took his mother's life. He was severely, severely troubled, severely troubled, and fell through the cracks of society and did not get help. And so, after that trauma, the uh, vice president's office. Vice President Biden reached out to me and said, you know, 
we've had several of these horrific mass shootings. We had had the Aurora Theater shooting in Colorado and the Sandy Hook, and they they were really wanting to look at mental health and asked if I would be part of that process. And so I put together a, a group of people that I trusted, my you know inner circle, people from the corporate community and the nonprofit and university, and and we worked together. And very quickly, it didn't it really didn't didn't take us long at all to to come to the conclusion, as you said, implementing it is a is the challenge, but the decision that. Our number one barrier for people to seek and receive care is our culture. It is the way that people refer to, think about, um, and feel dismissive or negative, use pejorative language um, to describe people who are suffering emotionally, you know, and, and, and the lack of compassion and, and ignorance and lack of uh, knowledge. So that really was what led to the decision to launch this public health effort that's focused on changing the culture. And First Lady Michelle Obama was brilliant in her uh, remarks when we launched it at the museum here in Washington, D.C. And she she said, you know, basically, we wouldn't say to someone who was dealing with cancer, you know, suck it up and get over it. And yet we do mm-hmm. that to people who are suffering emotionally all the time. We We try to, you know, joke them out of it or we try to say, hey, it's not that bad or it could be worse. Or, and mm-hmm. we're trying to, to be helpful, but but we're we're not. And so the work that began, it has just been extraordinary. Communities are adopting the campaign to change direction. There we my husband and I who's also part of our organization, also a psychologist. We were just up in Rhode Island over the weekend for a, a change direction community launch event. And every time we do an event, People in the community stand up. They want to share their story. They want to talk about what was helpful to them. They want to talk about how they can get involved. High school student at this launch event is put, had, put, had put together an entire project for her senior project focused on encouraging high school students in her community to identify their healthy habits. What works for them? Is it counseling? Is that an important part of their well-being effort? Is it meditation? Is it running? Is it gardening? Is it singing? But helping people tune into, we all have this part of us. We all have our inner space, our emotional core. What works for us is different. We are different from each other, but there are things that can work that we need to identify and then practice those things, work at that, just like we work at our, our physical health and, and and anything else that we value. We need to flip this so that we are valuing this part of ourselves, and then that drives a number of things. It drives policy. Mm-hmm. It drives research. So that's what the work is about, and, and uh, it is a big effort, but it is uh, <laughs> it is one that that I'm very very um, proud to to be driving. It's beautiful to hear. Now I understand that you have a new podcast series called Inner Space. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. we have a whole bunch of meditation centers around the world called Inner Space. Ah, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's beautiful. I know. We love it. We love it. Yes. So, um, who is your audience for this series, and what can we expect? So the podcast uh, really grew out of this work, as you can imagine, and mm-hmm. we're launching in mid-March, and it's a, this first uh, season will be 10 episodes, and it's a, it, it really is for 
Um, everyone. There are there are, are, are guests who were – it's really for anyone who's interested in this topic. How do I – understand my inner space how do i care for my inner space and what we're we're doing is we've interviewed now oh 30 plus people who are sharing their own perspective their own story some of them are celebrities um some of them are leaders in their own field many of them have been on their own journey um some just horrific um talking about what they've gone through, how they've come out on the other side, how they care for their own inner space. So we want our listeners to hear inspirational, engaging stories of real people and how they're using their platform, their voice, and what they've learned, um, how they can then take those those learnings and translate them for their own lives. Uh, we're really excited. And at some point, I would love to have you come on my podcast so we can talk about the work that you do and have done and continue to do because this is such a critical tool that that you provide for people to care for their inner space. Well, thank you. I'd be honored. Thank you so very much. Um, I would love to. So Thank leave you. us with some leave us with some last thoughts. Like um, if someone's just feeling a little down, what would be your best advice for them to just perk it up a little bit? So for people who, and again, this is part. That's the number. The first thought, uh, the first sort of point, is that you're not alone. We struggle. We humans struggle. We struggle in different ways for different reasons, but we struggle. Again, going back to what you had mentioned early on, it's so important to find people that you can share the struggle with. It can be a close friend, a family member. Some people write. They write in their journals, and that's a way of sharing. They use different um, techniques and tools. But make sure that whatever you, you do, connect to someone. Even if you don't yet feel that you can share your pain, you can share other things. You can reach out and say, and say, you know, hey, do you have time to go to lunch today? Can we go to a movie? Just being with people who are positive energy, have a good have a good feel that you can wrap around yourself when you're hurting. Trust yourself. If you're with people or in a situation that is contributing to the, the, the darkness that you're feeling, trust that that needs to change. Look for, mm-hmm. for help. Look for tools to move out of that so that you can be focused on caring for yourself. And if you feel that this is something that would benefit from professional help, please reach out through your primary care physician, through family member, friends who can say, you know what, I got some help through this counselor, really was helpful to me. Reach out, allow yourself that. It it really can save your life. Beautiful. And leave us at the website that our listeners can get a hold of you givenhour.org or changedirection.org. And soon look for anywhere that you listen to podcasts and find podcasts, you'll find Inner Space launching, I believe we're launching March 18th. Oh, beautiful. Congratulations in advance. And thank you, Barbara, for the work that you're doing. It's very important. We appreciate thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me on. I hope to, to chat with you again soon. Take care and have a great afternoon. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. So, folks, we've got somewhere to go. We've got lots of volunteers who are willing to come on and help you. If you're in need of anything, please contact Dr. Van Dalen, and you can go to her website that she gave for any information that you might need. You're not alone. You can go to givenhour.org if you're a health professional. 
and you're willing to contribute at least just an hour. And if you'd like some more information, you can go to campaigntochangedirection.org as well and ask for Dr. Barbara Van Dalen. So we have a lot of hope. And if you're in the nation's capital, she's right in our backyard. If you're in different parts around the country, uh, then just go on the website and find out where you can get support, get supported. And as Barbara said, you're not alone. And sometimes I think that's the greatest pain is that you think that you're the only one going through this alone and that you're not feeling, um, you know, comfortable about what's happening with you and you feel ashamed. Don't. It's just a story. We all have been through something similar. I mean, for me, I believe I've had more than one lifetime, and so I don't know if I've been there. So my empathy, my compassion, my understanding, it must be there. And this is why I I call upon everyone, put yourself in somebody else's shoe before you begin to judge them. And even if you do judge them, or you've criticized them, or you've been unkind in your thoughts, and you have recognized that, send them 14 positive, pure wishes and wish them to be benefited, to counteract the vibration that has now kind of flowed through your system which has made you also feel almost something similar to what you're criticizing or judging. So be very, very careful. Whatever you think about somebody, you feel it first. Whatever you say about someone, you feel it first. And whatever you do to someone, you're feeling it first. You've been listening to America Meditating Radio. Remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. And we really are here to love each other the same. Let's do that a little bit more. Let's help each other out a little bit more. I think it's really important, and I'm happy to say that this show was sponsored by Sacred Spaces in Sacramento. If you'd like some more information, do check them out. I'm going to end the show with a song by Bob Marley called War. Take care, everyone. Until the philosophy which old one race superior and another Inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned. Everywhere is war. It's a war that until they're no longer first class and second class citizens of any nation until the color of a man's skin is of no more significance than the color of his eyes a War that until the basic human rights are equally guaranteed to all without regard to race this a war The dream of lasting peace, world citizenship, rule of international morality, will remaining but a fleeting illusion to be pursued, but never attained. Now And until the ignoble and unhappy regime that holds our
Sister Jenna, you've been listening to America Meditating Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Did you enjoy that conversation? Because you can also listen to it on Spotify or on iTunes, 24-7, anytime, anywhere. I do trust we all have inner power to become our very best. When we listen with curiosity to learn more, we grow. So thanks so much for tuning in, and do be easy on yourself. Take care.